be to Matthew chapter 5. As you're turning there, I just want two notes quickly. The first of which is we will not get through the entire book of Matthew today. As opposed to the last couple of sermons, we've done entire books. So I'm sorry. <clears throat> the second of which is I always tell youth, because I'm a youth director, that I see everything from up here. So, John Harvitt, I see you back there. No, 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 no talk, no passing, you know, no whispering to your wife, no, any of that stuff. Okay, good. All right. So I see everything. These boys gave up. <laughs> These guys just said, oh, we'll just sit up front, Boomer. That's fine. So the other thing I want to mention um, is my attitude and our attitude as we come to Scripture. Oftentimes, we come to a new text and we, we want to dig right in. We want to say, here's how the text fits together. Let's see how it goes together and let's pull it apart and let's deconstruct and figure out how this adjective modifies this noun and all these other things. And we sort of come to it as if we're the surgeon doing surgery on the text. But I want to come and I want to pray for this. I want to pray that the scripture would actually take its scalpel and do its work on our hearts. That it would carve out sin, and that we would have a surgery performed on us, so that we look more like Christ and less like the world. Let me pray. Father, as we come to your word, we realize that it is powerful, that it cuts right through to our hearts. Father, I pray for them who are out there listening to me. I pray that their hearts would be open, that there would be a conviction of sin, and then you would give them great hope and rejoicing in the gospel message of Christ. Father, we must start very low to build very high. Father, I pray for myself that I would proclaim the word boldly and that you would bless us as we search your word for truth. Father, thank you. Help us be attentive. Take away all the distractions of our heart. We pray all this in Christ's strong name. Amen. Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we come to Scripture, as we come to a new book, we've been in Philippians, as we're changing gears, we're going to jump right into Matthew. One of the first things we want to ask is, What is Matthew talking about? Because in order for us to interpret the Beatitudes, which are part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is a part of Matthew, we have to ask the question, why was Matthew writing what he was writing? What is the purpose of the Gospel of Matthew? we got four other Gospels. Why did Matthew need to be written? Why is it significant within the life of the church that Matthew was written? And so as we come, I want to talk about Matthew, and then I want to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, and then I want to talk about the Beatitudes, and then we're going to get into the individual verses. And actually, you know, I've done whole books last time. We're only going to do two or three verses. So I'm sort of like vogularizing some of the things that we're going to be talking about today. But Matthew, why is Matthew writing his gospel? 
Well, first, Matthew is writing to a, a specific audience. His audience is Jewish. Or at least they have understanding of the Jewish customs. When Matthew writes, he speaks a lot about the Old Testament. He doesn't qualify all of his statements. But what he says is he's speaking to these Jewish people who are awaiting the promised Messiah. Words like Messiah, Kingdom of God, the Anointed One. All these things are, are known by the people Matthew is writing to. And Matthew is writing to say this. He said, you guys are waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Well, I'm here to tell you it's here. It's right here. It's in the person of Christ. Do you see it? And they go, no. (laughs) He's saying, you guys were looking for this kingdom. You were looking for this, this great king to come up on high, to rise up and overthrow Rome, and we would have this great socio-political kingdom. But the truth is, we have Jesus, and you've missed it. I liken this to a, a story. Um, Katie and I, it'll be seven years. Uh, we'll, we'll be married. I'm going to take this off because I keep bumping it. We'll have been married seven years this summer. And about seven years ago, um, we were having bridal showers and all kinds of crazy stuff were going on, and it's a happy time. But we, we went to a certain bridal shower, and, and, you know, if you're a guy, you're sort of ignorant about these things because you show up at a bridal shower, you get this gift, and... And you're supposed to be as excited as like you are when you're nine years old and you get a bike and it's a place setting. And you're like, woo! That's the 10th place setting we've gotten, you know? It's like, I mean, you get to the box and you're like, place setting, place setting. I mean, if you're a guy, you just have to be excited. And so we're at this bridal shower. I am only there to remove the loot, you know? I'm not really there to be a part of it. I came late. And so I'm there to take the things into the station wagon. And, and so I'm there late and... I'm getting all this stuff, and I was glad I wasn't there because Katie, she can be excited, and she was excited about all these things. Um, but then the people who were having the bridal shower for us, good friends of Katie's family, Aunt Dottie and Uncle Mitch, said, we want you guys to sit down because we want to give you our, your wedding gift. And I went, okay, yeah, okay, that, that'd be great. But, you know, I was trying to hedge my excitement a little bit, knowing I needed to look excited, but trying to hedge my excitement. And so he sits us down in a chair and says, close your eyes. I'm going to bring it out. So I close my eyes, and all of a sudden, I, he says, okay, you can open them. And there's this big bush sitting right in front of us, a big bush. And I'm like, wow, it's a bush. That's great. And he goes, oh, I'm just messing with you. Th- we didn't really get you a bush. So he takes it back, and I'm like, whoo, he didn't get us a bush. But then, now hold on. He says, now close your eyes again. And so then, and Uncle Mitch is a big jokester, so he says, close your eyes. And so and then he comes up. He says, open your eyes, and there's this chair that was painted. It's white. It's in our house. And, and I start laughing. I go, that's a good one, Uncle Mitch. Are you really going to give us our gift? Wham! So I get the elbow from Katie. She spent a lot of time on that. I love it. It's a beautiful chair, you know. Like, I mean, here was the gift that Israel had received. They had received the Messiah. They had received the promised one. They had received Christ, and they had missed it. They had missed it completely. They didn't know what was going on. All of a sudden, they, they see this person, this, this new king, but it doesn't seem like a king. They don't get it. So Matthew is writing to these Jewish people who don't understand that the promised Messiah has come. So that's the backdrop for, for Matthew writing. And the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew includes a Sermon on the, Mount, on the Mount to his desired audience to tell them this is what the kingdom really is. You guys were expecting a socio-political kingdom but this is what the kingdom is. And if you miss this, there's not much hope. 
And so he's writing to an educated audience, audience, a Jewish audience, an audience that understood the Old Testament, and he's writing about the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom in the person of Christ. Now, let me just touch on the kingdom real quick. The kingdom, which you and I are a part of, has come. Christ inaugurated this kingdom. We are a part of this kingdom, and yet this kingdom has not come to its full power yet. In, in, In seminary, we learn the terms inauguration. Christ has inaugurated his kingdom when he's come. We are now in the continuation of his kingdom, and yet the consummation of his kingdom, the height of its full power has not yet come. So we receive some of the prophets. We receive the Holy Spirit as a down payment. We begin to see some of the fruits of this kingdom, and yet we don't get to experience all of them in their full glory until we get to heaven. And the Beatitudes actually speak to this because there are future promises given, and there are also present realities. In much the same way, in our spiritual lives, there is present reality and future glory. Now, as we look into uh, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew is writing this book to people who are Jewish, who have missed the kingdom, and he's saying, look at Christ, because Christ has come, he has performed all these amazing miracles, he has brought, the blind can see, the deaf can hear, the lame walk, and he provides these so that people understand that Christ came in power, and then he uses five discourses, the Sermon on the Mount being the first of which, He explains the power in Christ's teaching. And so as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is to illustrate that the kingdom is here. It is in the person of Christ, but it is different than what you expected. Now, as we get into the the Beatitudes just a little bit, because Matthew had a decidedly Jewish audience and they understood the Old Testament, I thought it would be helpful for us if we looked into the Old Testament to find if there were any Old Testament Beatitudes which Christ was actually reflecting upon when he was giving his Beatitudes. So, get your Bibles out. You know, I know Bill gives you this. We're going to do some sword drills. Turn with me to Psalm 32, verse 1. Psalm 32, verse 1 says this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That is someone who is truly joyful. Turn with me to Psalm 84, verse 4. We're just going to briefly, quickly look at these. Psalm 84, verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Turn with me again to Psalm 106, verse 3. I'm not going to hurry you along like Bill does. I I wish Bill were here, I'd try to hurry him along. Um, Psalm 106, verse 3. Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times, And then the last one I want you to look at is Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah, so we're out of the Psalms, at least for one. There are others. I'm just briefly hitting some. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. In the Old Testament, there's this sense of blessedness on those who have a relationship with God. 
some translators would have us believe that the beginning of the Beatitudes, blessed, can be translated or interchanged with the word happy. But that's really not the connotation that blessed has here. Actually, the, the connotation it has is this. Blessed simply means you are a privileged recipient of divine favor. A privileged recipient of divine favor, meaning that God has poured out his grace upon you, that you are in a relationship with him. So when Christ begins to explain the Sermon on the Mount, when he, term, when he says blessed, when he uses this, this adjective to modify these people, he is reflecting back on the Old Testament usage of the word blessed. And so these people weren't just thinking about being happy. Rather, these people were thinking about how can they be joyful because the only people who are joyful are truly attached to God. And so there's a sense in which blessed means a privileged recipient of divine favor, not just happy. Okay? So let's, let's get into these Beatitudes just a little bit. We're only going to get into the first two today. But that's the backdrop. Matthew, we're talking about the kingdom. You guys have missed it. I'm going to tell you how the Old Testament is fulfilled in the person of Christ and how now Christ is the king. And you need to get on board, is what he's saying. So the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is interesting that verse 10 is the same promise. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is a present reality. If you're poor in spirit, or you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, then the present reality is that you are part of the kingdom of heaven, and that you are a fellow heir. The promises in between talk about the future. They talk about promises that will not completely be realized here on earth, but there's some sense in which they are just beginning to be fulfilled just a little bit. But eventually, all these promises will be fulfilled totally at the consummation when Christ comes back. Now, what does poor in spirit mean? First thing I want you, I want you to not think about is that it's talking about money at all. It's not talking about rich or poor or anything like that. Your scripture does not say that being poor is valuable, and it does not say that being rich is a sin. It doesn't say that. But what scripture does say here is, blessed, one who has received favor from God, one who is joyful in Christ, is this, one who is poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to think about this. There must be, and actually, the, the Beatitudes work themselves out in such a way that there's almost an order of salvation to them. Because you can't build up high unless you dig down deep. deep. Like when you think about those skyscrapers that are built 150, 200 miles up in the air, think about how many stories they're built down into the ground. They're not built on slabs. <laughs> they're not. They're built hundreds of feet into the ground. And so in the same way, the Beatitudes work ourselves into thinking about these things. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Here's what I want you to think about when you hear poor. I want you to think about emptying yourself. We empty ourselves when we come to God. Because we, don't, we can't come to him with our own merit. We don't come to him with our self-assurance. We don't come to him knowing that we have anything to offer him at all. But we come to him and we fall at his feet and we say, Lord, help us. Sometime in your Christian life, there's been a time when you realized you didn't have anything to offer God. And that is when you fell on your feet and you asked God to be merciful to you. Because as long as you were hoping in your own merits, as long as you were hoping within yourself, you kept trying harder. 
But eventually there becomes a time when you don't have anything else to offer. And you fall down and you say, God, help me. I know I have sinned in front of you and I don't have any merit to stand upon. So I throw myself at your feet. Please show me mercy. And at that moment, Christ gives you the keys to the kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you're a poor in spirit, if you have come to God and said, I don't have anything else to offer you. I'm a sinner and I have nothing to offer you. Then he gives you the keys to the kingdom. And you are no longer a citizen of this world. You are an adopted heir of heaven. Now, um, what is this? Anybody know what this is? Somebody can read it. What is it? Passport. What does it show? A passport shows, you know, besides a really bad picture, that's just part of being a, in a passport. You have to have a really bad picture in your passport. You know, it gives my name, where I was born, the date of my birth, um, sort of when it expires. But the, the biggest thing about a passport is it's issuing authority. If you're a poor in spirit, if you have gone to God, if you have fallen down and you said, Father, I am a sinner and I have come to you, I have emptied myself of all that I have, then God makes you a citizen of heaven. Not only a citizen, but a fellow heir. But what does it mean to empty ourselves? What does it mean to empty ourselves completely? I want to look at three different individuals within Scripture that illustrate being poor in spirit. The first of which is Gideon in Judges. Turn with me to Judges 6. Actually, Bill used him last week. It's pretty funny that Gideon gets as much airtime as he is right now. Judges chapter 6, verse 12. I'm going to start with verse 12 and read through 15. I shall start back in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at the Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abirazerite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, and here's where he, he, he exhibits this. Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am the least in my father's house. Gideon says, I don't have anything to offer. I'm not big, I'm not strong, I'm not great. It's exactly what the world wants us to, to be. The world wants us to be strong and great and bold and zealous and think that we can do anything in the world that we can do. But it doesn't want us to empty ourselves. You know, how many people, um, I'm not going to see a show of hands, but a resume. What does a resume say about you? A resume says, I'm educated, I have experience. Here are all the good things about my resume. It's, it's basically a note from your mom <laughs> saying how wonderful you are to your employer. Now, if you had a resume that said, I am poor in spirit and I mourn well, <laughs> you would probably not be hired. The world tells us, you know, you have to give a firm handshake. You have to look somebody in the eye. You have to be better than other people. You have to be charismatic. You, you can do this. But the, the kingdom of God is different. It is antithetical. It is, it is far different than that. It says, no, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that empty themselves before God because they see how holy God is and they realize their own sin. And that they must approach God on their knees in humility, knowing that they cannot do anything which merits his, his favor. It is antithetical. Turn with me to Isaiah, the next example of someone illustrating within Scripture that they are poor in spirit. Isaiah chapter 6. I'll pick it up in verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Look at Isaiah. Look at what he says again. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. How can I see God and live? I am nothing compared to Him. I have emptied myself of all that the world would tell me is good. And when I look at myself compared to God, I realize... His glory in my own inadequacy. The last person um, is Paul in Philippians. We spent a lot of time in Philippians, so I figured I'd go to this one. Philippians 3. Starting in verse, uh, verse 4. Paul is actually speaking to the Philippians saying, Look at all this good stuff about me, but I, I, I don't want you to think about this because I've emptied myself. I've been poor in spirit. Starting in verse 4 of chapter 3. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul says, look at me. I'm the epitome of perfection. It's like, if anybody can claim the, the favor of God, it is me. Look at my life. Look at my lineage. Look at my education. Look at all this stuff. And Paul says, but all that got me was death. Until I realized that I had to empty myself, that I had to be poor in spirit to inherit the kingdom of heaven. It is not something that we merit on our own. It is something that God gives us by his grace. What does poor in spirit mean? It means a complete absence of pride, of self-assurance and self-reliance. It means having a consciousness of who we are when we stand next to God. Okay, so, you know, now I told you what poor in spirit means. I'm not trying to get you guys to look real introspective and reflective about yourself. Because what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And this is not what I want you to do. I do not want you to go home and think about all the bad things that you're doing about yourself. Rather, here's what I want you to do. And I don't want to read a quote from a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones who wrote a book called Studies and Sermon on the Mount. It's an excellent book. You can pick it up at Signs of Life. There you go. Plugged it. If you want to read something really good, read this. This is what Lloyd-Jones says about this, and this is profound. How does one therefore become poor in spirit? The answer is that you do not look at yourself or begin by trying to do things to yourself. That was the whole era of monasticism or monks. Those poor men and their desire to do this said, I must go out of society, I must scarify my flesh and suffer hardship. I must mutilate my body. No, no, the more you do that, the more conscious you will be of yourself and the less poor in spirit. 
He actually says the more you look at yourself and become introspective, the less porn spirit you become because you're so self-absorbed about what's going on in your life that you're not even being porn spirit. In your pursuit of being porn spirit, you're so self-absorbed and self-respective that it's sort of the paralysis of analysis of your own life. This is what he says. He says, no, no, the more you do that, the more conscious you will be of yourself and the less porn spirit. The way to become porn spirit is to look at God. Read the Bible. Read about him. Read his law. Look at what he expects from us. Contemplate standing before him. It is also to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and to view him as we see him in the Gospels. The more we do that, the more we shall understand the reaction of the apostles when looking at him in something he had just done. They said, Lord, increase our faith. Here's the trick. This is funny. In order to be more poor in spirit, it's not to look at you. It's to look at God. Because as you look at God, as you contemplate, think about this, contemplate standing in the very presence of God, what would you do? Would you lift your face? Or would you kneel down? What must you do? You must empty yourself, because when you think of the glory of God, compared to your own inadequacies, or even your own inadequacies, think about how good you are, and then compare yourself next to God. You must fall down and worship Him. You have to. That is what being poor in spirit means. Just a note about theology. I love theology. And I've heard some Christians say, I don't like theology. You know, I just want to love Jesus. <laughs> you know, no creed but Christ. I mean, theology, it's, it's for people who want to talk well and know more stuff. But theology, this is the glory of theology. As you study about who God is, you become poor in spirit. As you think about the attributes of God, if you think about all the omnis, the omnipresence and omniscience, you know, all these things about God, you begin to understand who he is just a little bit more, which gives you perspective on who you are. And then you're given perspective on his glory. It's amazing. It's emptying ourself by looking at God. The second one, the next beatitude, turn back with me to Matthew 5, is this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, the Jews of, of Jesus' day, as well as the Jews of Matthew's day, remember I said they missed the kingdom? They were thinking, where's the kingdom? Where's the king? Where's Rome's being overthrown? Where is this going to happen? And yet, Christ comes and says, blessed are those who mourn? That doesn't make any sense. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted? Great, they're comforted, but what about the conquering? You know, I want to be blessed are the victorious who beat the tar out of the Romans. That's what we want. Turn me to Luke 6. Luke 6, verse 20. Because um, I almost did this because this is actually, the, the, in some of your Bibles, they say Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. You know, and this is Sermon on the Mount. And I thought what would be more appropriate for Kansas? Sermon on the Plain versus Sermon on the Mount. But here's what he says. He, the other thing about the Sermon on the Plain is that he, he pronounces woes. Chapter 6 in verse 24, here's the antithesis of what he was saying. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Christ is, what he's saying here is he's saying, if you are in the world, if you are loving the world, if you are laughing at the world, you will one day mourn and you will weep. If you enjoy the world, if you love it, and that is what you strive after, what you desire, what you are running after, then you will one day weep. However, in Matthew 5, he says, those who mourn now 
will be comforted. What are they mourning? And the very thing they're mourning over, just like it's spiritual and blessed are the poor in spirit, it's spiritual here. Those who mourn over sin. I'm going to say something that um, I said don't talk to Bill about, and you probably never hear in any church anywhere. And here it is. There is a joy that comes from sin. Okay, let me say it again. There is a joy that comes from sin. More, let me qualify that. There is a holy joy that comes from sin. And here it is. Because as you and I begin to look into the recesses of our heart and realize how terrible we are, we then see how great the grace of God is within our life. For me, when I was... Um, this is what did it for me. This is what pushed me over the edge. I think this is what actually brought salvation into my life. Was for a while, I thought that the distance between a holy God and a sinful man was about, you know, a step, you know? And so as long as you think you can step across, you're doing okay. But then when you begin to understand sin in such a way that you realize that it's not a, it's not a small step, it's a huge chasm. It's not a step, it's the Grand Canyon. It's a hundred Grand Canyons. Then you realize that the cross isn't little. You know, I, didn't, I don't need a little bridge here to step across. I need an enormous bridge to get across. And as you begin to understand the depths of your own sin, then you can rejoice at the glory of the cross. So in that way, there is a holy joy that comes from sin. And as we mourn over our own sin, as we're grieved over our own sin, then we have perspective on the cross and the grace of God. And that is the comfort we receive. One day, there will be no more sin, and we will be truly comforted. But in one sense, we're comforted now because we know that we are a part of God's kingdom. But one day, we will be truly comforted. Everything will be put aside. Let Let me go over it. Three people, or three instances of mourning over sin quickly. First Timothy 1. Paul is writing to the, this epistle to Timothy. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. Here it is. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost... But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. You know why Paul understands grace so much? Because he understands where he's been. He understands that he was a Pharisee, that he was misguided by the law. He understands that he was a persecutor of the church. He understands that he was a murderer. And understanding those things, he now understands the grace of Christ. He understood how low he was and to the heights that he would now attain through the blessing of Christ. He knows that without Christ, he would be there. Turn with me to to Matthew 9, verse 11. Matthew 9, verse 11 says this. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What does Christ say? He says, who does a physician come for? Are you sick or are you well? Because if you are sick, I have come to heal you. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7, verse 40 and following. 
Luke chapter 7, verse 40 says this. I'll wait for you for a second. Because I want you to read this. Because this is... And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. In the same way, when we understand the depths of our own sin, we can then rejoice at the bigness of the cross. When we begin to delve into our own hearts, when we begin to see the blackness of our sin, the cross becomes so much more beautiful. We must come very low in order to build very high. There must be conviction before there is conversion within believers. There must be. I got a phone call yesterday. I got a phone call from a... Uh, I was here just because I was working on a sermon, so I take Bill's hours when he's not here. You know, so, so I'm here at 3 o'clock. I get a phone call. Just kind of out of the blue. I thought it was my wife. I picked it up. And it was a, it was a guy who's not here. He's, he's from our church. And he said, hey, Boomer, I'm glad you're there. I don't know how. You know, he, just, he was taking a shot in the dark, maybe thinking I was there. He said, I got a problem. I don't know what to do. He said, my, my fiance's grandmother is going to a church. And it is bad. What do you know about this church? Well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> you know. I don't know about this particular church. And I say, I don't know. What do you know about the church? <laughs> so he begins to tell me. He begins to, to read me their mission statement. And he says, we believe that Jesus was a moral teacher. We believe that scripture, although good, has fallacies. That there are myths there are falsehoods, that there are things in Scripture that are not true. We believe that God is a loving God. We believe that, you know, essentially people should get along. He goes, what do you think, Boomer? I was like, well, you know exactly what I think about that church. (laughs) But, you know, here's the thing. This guy was not sitting in judgment over the church. His heart was breaking for this grandmother. That's what happens when we mourn over sin. Because when we begin to mourn over our own sin, our hearts soften. And rather than sitting in judgment over other sins, we begin to weep because sin is tearing people apart. When we begin to mourn over sin, it's amazing that opportunities arise for us to share Christ with others. Because when you're judgmental, how many of you guys have a question and really want to go to a judgmental person? You know, I don't. But if someone is tender and tender-hearted, it's amazing how many opportunities arise. And this individual said, will you pray for me as I write a letter to her? Because his fiance's grandmother is 80 years old, and they're both crying over the fact that she's in this club. I don't even call it a church. It's a club. And when you minimize sin, when you minimize sin, you minimize a key aspect of the gospel. Because without sin, there's no need for Jesus. There's no need for salvation. If there's no sin, if there's no judgment, if there's no punishment, then why do we have a Savior? What are we being saved from? Nothing. And so as we look at mourning, as we look at our own sin, as we mourn and grieve over our own sin, it gives us a better understanding 
of who Christ is. And then we're comforted because we're drawn to him and he forgives us. In the same way, there's great hope for you and I. Because although we've talked about some of the, um, the rougher beatitudes, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, next week we're going to talk about some of the, the more glorifying aspects of the fruit of the spirit, or not the fruit of the spirit, the beatitudes. I'm going to, I'm going to end with this. Um, have you ever heard, and just nod if you've heard this, that some secular people will say that Christianity is a crutch for weak-minded people? I really appreciated that when the governor of Minnesota, Jesse Ventura, said that, you know, the ex-pro wrestler. He said, Christianity is simply a crutch for weak-minded people. John Piper was asked that question in, in, I think, 1976. He was asked, do you think that Christianity is a crutch? And he went, yep. And the guy said, do you think, is that a good thing? He goes, I don't know. I don't go around kicking crutches out from people. See, you see people walking around, kick them, just kick them. Walk on your feet, you know? Crutches are a good thing. He said, the problem with you is you don't think you're crippled. You and I are crippled with sin. And the only way that we can walk with God is the crutch of Christ, if I can say that. So the problem is not that we're on crutches. The problem is we think we're not crippled. And people are walking around with these these huge burdens of sin on their back. The only answer for sin is Christ. As we are poor in spirit, as we empty ourselves, as we think about mourning over our own sin, it should draw us to Christ. It should draw us to God. Now, these first two things, I said I was in conclusion. I'm not really, I'm not done yet. I'll say one more story. <laughs> because some of these things are talking about, okay, well, boom, I'm dying. I'm poor in spirit. I've come to God. I've said I'm, I've emptied myself of all that I have. I'm mourning over my sin. I'm mourning over the sin of that that's around me. You know, okay. But some of you, um, you know, but didn't that all happen when I first came to Christ? These are all marks of a Christian. The Beatitudes are the very qualities and attributes that a Christian will possess and manifest in, in his life. I just want to share this last story, and this really is my last one, so, so you can listen. Um, the time of my life, after I, I received Christ, that was probably the most, um, it just opened my heart up, was um, I was in seminary, and this is a joyful thing, not a sad thing, but Katie came to me and said, honey, we're pregnant with Benjamin. And I was ecstatic, because, I mean, we were, I didn't know it was a boy then, I didn't know it was Benjamin, but we were just happy we were pregnant, you know? It was a joyful thing. And then I, somebody asked me, well, how do you feel? And I was like, I sort of feel like joy and fear are doing the mamba in my stomach. <laughs> you know, like I just, oh, it's just this, this fear and joy. And the hard thing about, for me, that Katie was pregnant, is all of a sudden I realized I can't manipulate this anymore. Like when I'm sick, I go to the doctor. If I'm not doing well in school, I try harder. If I'm not making enough money, I get another job. Or I, or I start working harder, I pick up another job. All of a sudden, I realize that a lot of my world, I manipulate. And I try so hard to do it myself. And with this little baby that's being knit inside my, my wife's womb, I came to the end of myself and said, I have nothing. I can't do anything. I must trust. It was very difficult. 
for me, that was becoming poor in spirit. It was emptying myself of all that I could offer, all that I could give. Let me, let me pray for us. I'll finish up next week with the Beatitudes. Father, we are grateful for your love for us. And Father, I pray for all of us that we would manifest the Beatitudes within our life, that people would see us and realize that we are poor in spirit, that we have emptied ourselves. And we do not walk around as sad, despondent people, but we walk around with joy, knowing that Christ has saved us. Father, as we mourn over our sin, I pray that it would soften our hearts so that we would not sit in judgment, but we would weep as Christ wept over Jerusalem. Father, that sin... Father, I pray that there would be a great joy in the gospel of Christ, in the cross of Christ, knowing that it has saved us, that it has saved us from our sin. And as we look into our own hearts, the recesses of our hearts, we recognize that sin is great, but that the cross is greater. And that we do not walk away, again, despondent, but we walk away with great hope and joy and courage in the gospel. Father, work that out within us and through us. We pray all these things in the strong name of Christ. Amen.